Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. No matter how far down the road we might have gone into whatever form of idolatry, you know, the Lord is always inviting people to return to Him. He's always calling out for us to come back, to turn our back on those idols and to put our trust in Him. And we see His promise here, I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgression. And that's what God does when we come back to Him. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study through the books of the Old Testament prophets. Join us as Pastor Brian concludes his teaching on Isaiah chapter 42, verse 10 through chapter 43, verse 28. Now, here's Pastor Brian. Let's think about the process of how this thing came into existence. So he takes us back to the blacksmith and he takes us back to the craftsman. And like he says here, at one point, the craftsman is basically drawing a figure with chalk that he's then going to cut out. And this is going to become your God. So according to the beauty of a man that it may remain in the house, he cuts down cedars for himself. He takes the cypress and the oak. He secures it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a pine and the rain nourishes it. Then it shall be for a man to burn, for he will take some of it and warm himself. Yes, he kindles it and bakes bread. Indeed, he makes it a god and worships it. He makes it a carved image. He falls down to it. He burns half of it in the fire. With this half, he eats meat. He roasts to roast and is satisfied. He even warms himself and says, ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And here's the irony. The rest of it he makes into a God. So the point that God's making here is how, how is it that the idolater is so blind to what they're actually doing? The, the very same wood that they use to cook their food and to warm themselves, they now turn into an idol and bow down and worship it and pledge themselves to it. It's like God is saying, how how can this even be? This is so senseless. It's so mindless. It's so absurd. And And it really is true. Let's read a little bit further. He says, the rest of it he makes into a God, his carved image, he falls down before it and worshiping it, prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. They do not know nor understand for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see in their hearts so that they cannot understand. And no one considers in his heart nor is their knowledge nor understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire Yes, I have also baked bread with its coals. I have roasted meat and eaten it. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? An abomination was a way of referring to the idol. Shall I fall down before a block of wood? You see, God is, again, he's being sarcastic here. He's he's really mocking the whole process. Don't you understand what you're doing? He says, you're you're falling down before a block of wood. And you know, you think of... um, the idolatry of the ancient peoples, 
it's extended to the present time. It, it's Nothing's changed. You can find cultures today where people do exactly what is being described here in Isaiah. Now, we might not be able to find any of these kinds of things here in the United States or maybe in most of, you know, Western culture, our idols are more sophisticated, but there are still places in the world today where you're going to find exactly what's going on here. And otherwise intelligent people can't seem to understand that they're just really worshiping a block of wood. But then otherwise intelligent people here in the more materialistic culture don't seem to be un- to be able to understand either that the things that they are worshiping, the things that they're living for, the things that they're putting all of their confidence in or their stock in, that these are just as unhelpful in a time of crisis, in a time of need. You know, you think of uh, when sickness strikes, you think of when somebody is laid out, or you think of, you know, just the different calamities that can come somebody's way and how even their position during those times or perhaps their wealth or whatever their successes might have been, they don't avail anything. But yet those are the things that people have confidence in. They're the things that people trust in. And what is the explanation for that? Well, there's a blindness. And that's what the Lord is describing here, that there's a, there's a dullness. They can't even see the insanity of of what they're doing. And so it is today. And we need the Spirit of God to open the eyes of a person. I needed that. You needed that. We all are guilty probably of in some way, shape, or form having gone through this type of a thing with our idols and, and yet not seeing the, the foolishness of it all. And then thank God, by his mercy, through his grace, uh, one day we began to realize how utterly foolish this was, how stupid it was. How, what am I, why am I giving myself to this? Why am I thinking that this is going to fulfill me or this is going to, in the end, save me? And because of that work of the Spirit, we're awakened to the reality of what we're doing and we turn from that. And that's called the grace of God and thank God for it. You know, I I was thinking though about how during this time, there are people that are reevaluating. There are people that are asking themselves questions. There are people that are seeing that they're, the things that they've been putting their confidence in are, are not really able to sustain them in the midst of, of this kind of a reality or something similar to it. And it just, for some reason, it got me to thinking about, you know, just how so often we don't really think through things. We just sort of turn our brains off in a sense and, and we don't think through. But times like this, they cause us to pause and to think about things that we normally wouldn't think about. I mean, think, think about this. So Jesus said this, what would it profit a person to gain the whole world and lose their soul? Or what can a person give in exchange for their soul? So, so think about that for a moment. Think about, okay, 
what, what would it profit? What, what value would it be? I could get everything. I could get the whole world. I could have for a, a period of time, <laughs> however long it might be, maybe it'd be brief, maybe it would be a little bit longer. I just, the whole world, I could have it right at my fingertips. I could just do whatever I wanted. But then when it was over, it would be over and I would lose everything. I would lose everything. I would lose my soul forever. And that's what I would have exchanged my soul for. So I exchanged my eternal soul for a temporary experience of fulfillment or getting everything that I ever wanted. Now, would you really want to do that? This is what I was just thinking about this the other day. You know, if somebody could sit down and just reason through it and think, okay, wait, that, no, that doesn't sound like a good idea. I'm, yeah, so I get to everything. I get to gain the whole world and that's going to be great. But then I, I'm going to die and I'm going to, all of this is going to be taken. And then my soul is going to spend forever in outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I just think, is there anybody that really would, in their right mind, make that decision, make that choice, decide for that? And I, I don't think there is, but lots of people do it. How is it that people do it? I think this is how they do it. They convince themselves that it isn't really the case. They convince themselves that, well, there, there really is nothing after this life. It's just, you know, when you're gone, you're gone. Or... You know, if there is a God, he's surely, you know, he's, he's basically loving. And so in the end, he'll, he'll forget all my wrongs and he'll, he'll forgive me. Or maybe I'll have to suffer for a season, but then I'll, I'll get through it. But there, there's some way of thinking that somehow this isn't going to really happen. So that's how people go on in their sin. But what God is reminding the people of Israel of over and over again is that these things, they are all real issues and they all have real results or consequences is probably a better word. So the consequence of their idolatry, they couldn't see that there was anything inconsistent with it, but they lived it out and it led to their demise. So the moral of the story is cast away your idols and and trust in the Lord. Put your trust in him. And so he says, remember, in verse 21, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions and like a cloud your sins. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Wow, God's mercy. And, you know, no matter how far down the road we might have gone into whatever form of idolatry, you know, the Lord is always inviting people to return to him. He's always calling out for us to come back, to turn our back on those idols and to put our trust in him. And we see his promise here, I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgression. And that's what God does when we come back to him. Later on in this book of Isaiah, we'll come to the in the 55th chapter, I think, or the 56th, 
where the Lord says this. He says, let the wicked forsake their way and the unrighteous person their thoughts and let them return to the Lord for he will have mercy upon them. He will abundantly pardon them. That sounds too good to be true. And somebody might even hear that and think, well, how how could that be? And then the very next verse says, for my ways are not your ways, says the Lord. My ways are not your ways. No, that, that doesn't seem like that could happen, that God would have mercy, that he would abundantly pardon, but he will because his ways are not our ways. And so blotting out the transgression, seeing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it, shout, you lower parts of the earth, break forth into singing, you mountains, O forest and every tree in it, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. Thus says the Lord, your redeemer, and he who forms you from the womb, I am he who makes all things. As I mentioned before in these passages here through Isaiah, God restates over and over again in Isaiah the fact that he is the maker of all things. And just to remind you, of course, Genesis chapter one and two tells us that God created the heavens and the earth and so forth. And, you know, some people seem to assume that that's the only place that the Bible states that. Well, that's the first place it states it because that's the beginning. But God repeats that over and over again. He is known the way he presents himself often is as the maker of heaven and earth. The Lord God, the God of Israel, the maker of heaven and earth. This is unlike all of the other gods, the false gods. They didn't make anything. They certainly didn't make the heavens and the earth. But God reminds the people over and over again, and he formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens all alone. Wow, stretches out the heavens all alone, who spreads abroad the earth by myself. Wow, the Lord is so amazing. And, you know, one day, all of those who are, have put their trust in him are gonna see the glory of God. This God who stretched out the heavens all by himself, who created the earth and everything in it, who sustains it all presently. Uh, This very God who came into human history as a man named Jesus of Nazareth, everything's coming down to him. And he's reminding the people of Israel that here again, who frustrates, this is what he does. He frustrates the signs of the babblers. The babblers were those who would give the incantations and things. He drives diviners mad, who turns wise men backward and makes their knowledge foolishness, who confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers. So these are the things God does. And I think this is interesting. He makes their knowledge foolish. He turns wise men backward. And he did that especially with the gospel. And you think of the words of Paul in writing to the Corinthians. The Corinthians were Greeks and they were um, immersed in Greek thought and philosophy. And they thought that this was such wisdom. And the gospel comes along. It's a very simple gospel. And the gospel does for people what philosophy could never, ever do. 
It changes their lives. It gives them hope. It gives them peace. It helps them to know how to love and to treat one another kindly and graciously and righteously and, and all of these things. And just through that simple message, but remember Paul to the Corinthians, um, he speaks about the, the attitude of some toward the gospel. To, to the Greek mind, the gospel was foolishness. It was so foolish. It seemed so, it just seemed so simple. And it's all based upon this, this Jewish person of all things to put your hope in, a Jewish person who was crucified on a Roman cross. This is the antithesis of what the Greeks would think of as what was the way that you were going to attain to some sort of salvation or whatever the case might be. But all of that wisdom of the Greeks God turned it all to folly. In the fourth century, there was a great man named Athanasius. And Athanasius, um, one, of, one of the books that he wrote comes down to us today, and it's called On the Incarnation. And he has a chapter in that book where he talks about the philosophers of the day and the seeming brilliance of philosophy, but, the, but also simultaneously the powerlessness of it. It, it could never do anything for anybody. Even the philosophers themselves couldn't, you know, really, they didn't live any kind of a transformed life through it. But he talks about how the gospel comes along and how God takes fishermen and he takes a tax collector and he takes these just simple people and he literally changes the world through that message. And the philosopher's message never changed anything. It's, it's really a fascinating read from Athanasius. It just came to my mind as I was thinking about it there. So that's what the Lord said he does. He confirms the word of his servant, performs the counsel of his messengers. He says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited. The cities of Judah, you shall be built. So remember, when the people of Judah go into captivity, taken to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar, the city is just, is destroyed. The temple is destroyed, the city is destroyed, and it's gonna lie in rubble for 70 years. And so you can only imagine in the minds of the people, there is no future for Jerusalem. There is no hope that there's ever going to be a restoration. God says, there is going to be. The cities of Judah, you shall be built, and I will raise up her waste places who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, now here is a very interesting turn. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. He shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. So here God names this ruler who has not been born and will not come onto the world scene for about a hundred plus years now. So that this is what is so fascinating. God gives him his name. Cyrus is his name. He calls him by name. You know, it reminds me of another passage where the prophet prophesied to the king of Israel, the wicked king of Israel, that one day there would be a child born to the house of David named Josiah. And then he goes on to tell all the things that Josiah would do 
And hundreds of years later, Josiah was born and did exactly what the prophet said he would do. So here now we have this prophetic word about Cyrus. Now, Cyrus was the Persian king. He came to the throne of Persia in 559. And in 549, he conquered the kingdom of the Medes. And so the it became known then as the Medo-Persian Empire. And they took over the Medes and just assimilated them in. And then in 539, he conquered Babylon. And so that's what God is talking about here, that Cyrus is going to come. And so thus says the Lord to his anointed. This is really fascinating that he refers to Cyrus as his anointed. You probably know that the word Mashiach is the Hebrew word for anointed. That means Messiah. And so now, of course, you find this word in the Old Testament. It's used of the kings. It's used of the prophets. But then there is one designated Messiah that begins to be spoken of in Scripture. And and that, of course, would be Jesus, who would come as the Messiah. But Cyrus is anointed. He's a Messiah in the sense that he is God's servant to accomplish God's will. Now, Cyrus, it says, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze, cut the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, am the God of Israel. And Jacob, my servant, for Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is no God beside me. So again, remember, this is how God is proving that he is the only God, that he is the one true God. He's proving it by telling the future. And so now he's saying, there, Cyrus is going to come, and he is going to do my will. He's going to set the people free from the captivity as he conquers Babylon. And that's exactly what Cyrus did. Now, Josephus, the Jewish historian, he says that when Cyrus came into Babylon, that he was met by a Jewish delegation who brought him the scroll of Isaiah and showed him where the prophets over a hundred years earlier had predicted his arrival and what he would accomplish. And Cyrus was so overwhelmed by this that he basically just gave carte blanche to the Jews at that point and did exactly what God said they would do. They went back to the land. He sent them back to the land with the order to go and rebuild the temple. So now remember, Isaiah's writing this. They've not even gone into Babylonian captivity yet.
Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled 15 New Testament Words of Life, a New Testament theology for real life by Dr. Nijay Gupta. Words can change their meaning over time, or they can carry a different meaning depending on the context in which they are used. So what is the meaning today of words in the Bible like faith, grace, hope, or peace? Do these words still have the same meaning today? Do you really understand what they mean in the Bible? These words not only have a rich history of meaning that is found within the whole Bible, but they also have a powerful significance for our lives today. You'll learn what it means to know God, to be changed by His favor, and how to lean into a redeemed future with an expectation of wholeness, goodness, and harmony. This book will bring theology into your life in a very practical way, as Nietzsche helps you to reflect on how each of the 15 words might look like in everyday life. If you're interested in what the New Testament has to say about God, God's people, or God's world, then you need to get this month's resource from Back to Basics. The book 15 New Testament Words of Life, a New Testament theology for real life by Dr. Nijay Gupta, is our gift to say thank you for your donation to Back to Basics. So we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Isaiah. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.